Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. All the better for seeing you. Welcome back. back. Yes, we are back from our, our summer holidays. If those of you listened to our last episode, that was our summer holiday episode. And now we are back with the semester looming uh, in the near future. But uh, good to be back. How was America, David? Uh, America was... America was great. Um, America's always great. Um, don't need to make America great again. It's already great. <laughs> it's been great for a long time. Um, yeah, I had a good time. I, I got lots of good archival work done. I saw some some family members, saw uh, you know old friends. Um, yeah, had some good had some good food that you can or some different food than one can get here. Uh, so so you know grits and and uh, collard greens and those kinds of things that are in short supply in Edinburgh. So. Excellent. Yeah, good time. And was your travel okay? Because of course we've it's been the summer of travel chaos. How was your travel? My travel was remarkably good. We flew Icelandic Air. I don't want to be. You know, I'm not a big like priority for different airlines, but Icelandic Air they did really well. Uh, they they flew us right over the volcano that was erupting uh, in Iceland while we were there. So it was it was very exciting. We had a short turnaround in, in Reykjavik, and uh, yeah, everything went remarkably smoothly. Excellent. So uh, your luggage wasn't lost. Luggage or? wasn't lost. They, they everything you know. That all work like clockwork. I have an interest in this because, I, as you know, but our listeners don't, I'm going to America next week and for a family wedding, and ah. I really don't want my luggage to get lost. Okay, well, for, for those of you who are considering visiting Scotland, the Icelandic air, they fly, uh, they fly into Glasgow. Uh, so, good stuff. Right. Uh, it has been a busy uh, few weeks since we had our last episode. Yeah. The world has, has had a lot of things happening, so what we thought we would do this week is to look at three of the big events uh, that have happened in those... Uh, intervening weeks and try to provide some context for them. Uh, the three big events would be the uh, Kansas uh, uh, referendum on, on abortion, uh, which happened on the uh, 2nd of August, the uh, passage by the Senate of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is due to be passed, I think, by the House maybe today, uh, and then hopefully off to, to President We're Biden. speaking on Friday the Friday, 12th. Friday the 12th, yes, thank you. And uh, finally, the... the uh, FBI, um, some people are calling it a raid, some people are calling it a uh, 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 investigation into Mar-a-Lago and taking 15 boxes of, of, of records that were stored uh, in Mar-a-Lago. So, yes, it should be said with regard to that, that the um, warrant is going to be unsealed this afternoon, probably. Yes. So, so, so we don't know the content of that warrant as we record Listeners this. in the future, you, you have access to history that we do not have. Or, yes, but they always do. They always do. That's the nature of how time works, Frank. Right? Okay, good. But let's 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 go with uh, the Kansas vote. Yeah, well, basically take them in chronological order. order, right? Um, so, for those of you who who uh, didn't catch this story, this is a referendum that took place uh, in Kansas. It was held in conjunction with the primary election. Uh, the origins behind this is that the Kansas Supreme Court in 2019 ruled that the state constitution protected abortion, uh, and this was a referendum that was attempting to overturn that Kansas uh, Supreme Court opinion saying that the Kansas constitution did not protect abortion, if that makes any sense. So it's every, so it would revoke that protection, protection allow the legislature to impose restrictions. Yes. So it's in the aftermath of the Dobbs versus Jackson's women's health, but it, it it's effort to counterbalance the particulars of this uh, Kansas Supreme Court. So it's, so just a key po po point of background here, because of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, yes. 
the Supreme Court took the view that, that this should be a matter decided at the state level. So what we're seeing in Kansas is one of the earliest um, examples of this. Yes. There will be more. So there have been a bunch of states that have had um, trigger laws that have been acted, or, or, or uh, that is to say, bans on abortion that have come immediately as a consequence of, of the overturning of uh, Roe and Casey, but this is one of the first examples, and maybe we'll talk about Indiana as well, um, in which there's been actual sort of uh, electoral action related to this. And David, were you surprised at this outcome? Uh, it's it's an intriguing outcome, um, and I was a bit surprised by it. Kansas is a very red state, right? It, it is it has been a very red state for. A very long time for for yes for, for 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 several decades it has been in some ways an exemplary of a of a red state, um, but it's also a red state that has some libertarian leanings in it, uh, which may help explain this referendum outcome. It's a state obviously that that Trump won pretty decisively. There are much by eighteen points. points right, and and there is much more Republican registration in the state uh, than than there are Democrats. Uh, but the uh, pro-choice side of this referendum was it was a fairly decisive victory, uh, and so that is that is surprising considering that you know, the, the 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 demographics and and electoral history of the state. Yeah, well, well it was fairly decisive. I mean, it was decisive. It was nearly sixty percent in favor of. Mm. Um, well, not in favor. One of the confusing aspects of this was the wording of the actual yeah, amendment, yes. proposed amendment or the referendum. But uh, it was sixty percent in favor of, uh, nearly sixty percent in favor of keeping hmm. um, abortion rights in Kansas. So, so uh, yeah, I was a little surprised. Uh, well, frankly, I was a lot surprised. I think a lot of people were, were surprised. Hmm. I mean, I think you would have thought an abortion vote, vote in Kansas, at least I would have thought, would have gone uh, the other way. And the fact it was so decisive is interesting. When you dig down, though, it, uh, things become a little, both more complicated and more interesting. So there was a Pew poll in, in July last month um, that showed that 60, in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, that showed that 62% of Americans believe that abortion should be legal in most or mm. all cases. And when you put the vote in Kansas next to that, which is nearly 60%, that means Kansas, unsurprisingly perhaps, is... Um, in sync with the rest of the country on this particular question, which I, I think is interesting. The other thing uh, that is interesting, and you, you alluded to the kind of libertarian tradition in Kansas, uh, I think that's important. I think it was very interesting the way that the um, proponents of abortion rights uh, wage their campaign around this this referendum question. So they, in some cases, and particularly in conservative parts of the state, basically uh, use the examples of mask mandates and say, well, you don't want the government telling you what to do, do you? Mm. And that message seems to have resonated in... Uh, there are blue parts of Kansas. One thing we always have to, we talk about blue states and red states, and that language is is helpful to a point, but it also distorts. Mm. You know, the suburbs of Kansas City are like suburbs, and uh, well, Kansas City and, and its suburbs are not unlike other urban areas in the United States. They tend blue. Um, and so I think it was an interesting coalition that produced this result. I think the implications for the wider debate over what happens with abortion rights are, are interesting. So the New York Times reported a day or two after um, this result 
uh, on, became known on August 3rd, that um, some anti-abortion um, activists who feel like they have the upper hand because they have the Supreme Court on yeah. their side, for one thing, have were seeking to calibrate their messaging a little bit because they've been riding quite high uh, in the past six months, really. And that uh, maybe there was a feeling, at least among some, that they perhaps they'd overplayed their hand. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. You alluded to the uh, decision, the Indiana legislature. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the legislature, not the electorate of Indiana, but the legislature in Indiana, um, recently passed a quite restrictive abortion law yeah. that prohibits abortion in almost all cases with some exceptions for for um, in terms of the health of the mother and rape and incest but so so we see Kansas the electorate in Kansas saying one thing a, a deeply red state mm. in another quite red state Indiana the legislature's gone in the other direction so yeah that, that's the intriguing thing you've got two data points because they because they are not only both red states but I tend to think of them as being I mean and with all the caveats you implied they're red, fairly similar red states. Otherwise, they both have uh, very Republican legislatures. They both have this, you know, tradition, uh, a similar sort of political tradition in the past few decades. Um, but they have these two very different results. Um, and what I think what that tells us is that that the processes that get people elected into state legislatures, uh, which includes a decent amount of gerrymandering. And is leads to results that are not particularly representative of what the voters actually want, you know, on particular issues. If if this referendum is a or can lead to it, yes, can lead to it, but, but oftentimes leads to it because I think that the the vote in Indiana was in the the in, in both houses of their legislature was overwhelmingly in favor of this restrictions on abortions. Um, much in the same way that the vote in the Kansas referendum was in favor of maintaining access to abortion rights. And, and I think that disjuncture is, is it's interesting and potentially troubling about how sort of democracy in, in, is working at the moment. I suspect the Kansas legislature probably looks like the Indiana legislature on this question. Yes. Uh, and had that ballot measure passed, then the Kansas legislature would have then been empowered, uh, empowered to, to, to take similar decisions. Interestingly, so there are ballot initiatives coming up in a number of very different states mm. uh, in, in, in coming months, especially in November. Uh, the one that I'm most interested in, I think, is Kentucky. Because mm. I think Kentucky which, of course, borders Indiana. Um, in Kentucky, uh, there may be a similar disjuncture between the feelings of the, of the population at large or the, and the legislature. Mm -hmm. well, we have to, we'll have to wait and see about that. And again, I read some... Um, uh, in doing the research for this episode, I was reading some of the, uh, the advocates for, for uh, abortion restriction in Kentucky are kind of... Looking at what happened in Kansas quite closely and trying to trying to adapt their campaign accordingly, mm. there are other upcoming ballot initiatives uh, relating to abortion in California, Vermont, and Michigan. I think the expectation is that California and Vermont, uh, as quite blue states, will 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 vote to uphold abortion rights. Michigan's going to be very interesting because Michigan, Michigan, almost everything else we're talking about here in terms of mm. uh, the other things that have been going on in, the, in recent weeks. I mean, Michigan, the election in Michigan this this autumn is going to be 
very, very interesting for all kinds of reasons, but right. not least because of this. So I think uh, Michigan will be will be more difficult. It'll be more difficult to say, okay, uh, the vote was about abortion because mm. it's going to be about a lot of other things sure. as well in Michigan. But I think those four states are very, very different states in, in all kinds of ways. But Kentucky's the one I'm most yeah. interested in, I think, on this question. The, the intriguing thing, one of the other intriguing things about the Kansas referendum is how many... Uh, new voters that were in that referendum, right? That that it, it was during a primary election. Usually primary elections have very low voter turnout, relatively speaking. Uh, and the turnout for this one, because of the referendum on the ballot, was double what primary uh, elections in Kansas usually generate. And that, that there were some polls, of, or there's some studies of, of new voter registration in Kansas, uh, and they were overwhelmingly women. Uh, and I think that speaks to, to sort of the ways in which the, the Dobbs decision is going to be a transformative one in the election going forward in 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 November uh, in terms of uh, what the electorate looks like and, and what issues are motivating the electorate. That was certainly, I mean, after Dobbs in June, uh, after that decision came down, some of the analysis was saying this is going to motivate people on the other side mm-hmm. and they will turn out to vote. I'm a... Uh, I'm unconvinced about that, although the Kansas case would suggest that that might well be true. Uh, it remains to be seen. There did, did seem to be a number of people who voted in Kansas just on the referendum question and did not vote on anything else further down the ballot, um, which is an intriguing uh, outcome. The other aspect of this, and I alluded to this before, that I found very interesting was that they made a deliberate appeal to otherwise conservative voters. Mm. And that that seemed to have been effective. Yes, I think it was the libertarian argument. You don't want, yeah. as you pointed out, it's, it's about government control. You don't want the government controlling choices, um, which is a, which is a, which it works. I think particularly well in Kansas. The referendum aspect of this is interesting, in as much as you know the legal structures for referendums in different states is all over the board, right? And the referendum as a political tool is. Approximately 120 years old. It's a, an introduction of the progressive era. Some states have them, some states don't. The, the loop, the, the structures for how that kind of direct democracy works is, is very different in different states. Uh, and so I think it's going to kind of add to the kind of um, kind of political mess that's going to that the Dobbs decision is going to result because you are going to end up with very different kinds of outcomes in different states, and you're going to end up as the Kansas case suggests, potentially the legislature ticking one way and the pop, the electorate doing the opposite. Um, and one can imagine the number of, of states where that happens. Yeah, I mean, one, one consequence of handing over major decisions like this to the states is the states are a patchwork. Mm-hmm. And they have different traditions and, uh, and practices and so on. And then you end up with a it's much messier. There's no doubt about it. Mm. Uh, the argument in favor of this and the argument in favor of referenda is they're more democratic. You're giving the you're giving the decision to the people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. So, so one argument in favor of giving authority to the states is mm. it's closer to the people, and this is this is this yeah. is more democratic. To be sure. But it's also a much messier and more confusing. Mm. Oh, to be yes, because there's no uniformity across the states about how these things are enacted and, and uh, which states allow what. To be sure. All right, let's go to our, our second story, which I think all these will, will connect in the end. Um, 
Oh, I have a theory, David, or I have an argument. <laughs> he is a grand unifying theory of the past three weeks. Great. Um, earlier this week, uh, the Senate passed a version of the inflation, what is now called the Inflation Reduction Act, which I think is a fascinating name, uh, which is a version Joe of... Joe Biden supports the IRA. <laughs> oh, um, it's a version of the Build Back Better bill. It's a version of 12 other things that have had different names over the years. It's a 755-page piece of legislation that is intended to do a number of things, uh, including fight climate change uh, and to improve health care access, particularly for prescription drugs, and to do some uh, tax reform to make sure that uh, wealthy corporations pay some taxes and dozens of other things. that are And reduce the deficit. And reduce the deficit and fight inflation and increase the size of the IRA. There's all kinds of stuff in this bill. It's a, it's a huge monster thing. It's a smaller monster than what uh, many Democrats had wanted, uh, but it's uh, what's well, on the order. Yeah, it's billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. Yes. And now it looks like it's going to the House, which is coming back into session to vote on it uh, today. So maybe today or tomorrow over the weekend uh, and uh, then on to President Biden's desk, presumably. Thoughts on the Inflation Reduction Act, Frank? Let's let's talk about how it came to be, uh, just very briefly. Because yeah, how the sausage gets made. Okay. Because one of the things we talked about doing an episode on this week was mm. about the Senate, mm. uh, but then we've been overtaken by lots of events, and so we decided not to do that. But this uh, about two or three weeks ago, perhaps while you were away, or certainly or right before you went away. Um, it looked like this bill was totally dead, and Joe Manchin was the worst person in the world. The Senate. That's a, that's a bold claim. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that was the that that was the the zeitgeist, yes, right? Yes. Because Joe Manchin had the senator from West Virginia um, had said he was opposed to the bill, or as it was then proposed, and that seemed to be the end of it. Manchin, the Democrats, of course only have 50 senators, so therefore they need everyone in their caucus on board in order to pass legislation, particularly legislation of this kind. And Manchin's, the, the lack of support from Joe Manchin seemed to be the end of this. What seems to have happened, based on the reporting we've seen in the past week or so, is that Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, um, got together, sort of sub rosa, and, and away from the glare of the television lights, and then tried to work work out a compromise, and that seems to have worked. They also had to bring Kirsten Sinema on board, who is a senator from Arizona, mm. Democratic senator from Arizona, who has her other concerns. Uh, and Manchin and Sinema have been the kind of banes of the Biden administration mm. in many respects because they've been the main obstacles to their getting uh, the administration passing much of its legislative agenda or occasionally uh, obstructing it. And they've got to bring along the Senate parliamentarian because this is passed under a process called reconciliation, budget right. which has to do with the budget, and there are very particular rules about what kinds of legislation can be uh, passed to use this process, which means the Democrats can do it with 50-51 votes as opposed to needing 60 to end debate. Right? That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. And in fact, I think one reason it's called the Inflation Reduction Act is to stress the economic side of things and the budgetary aspect yes. of it to get it past the parliamentarian. Uh, so, yeah, that's important. The other thing is they pulled a fast one on Mitch McConnell and, and the Republican caucus because the Republicans had said they would hold up voting on a microchip, a microchip act 
uh, or bill that was quite important and, and was seen as an important uh, uh, piece of legislation for the United States, both economically and strategically. Uh, they would hold this up unless and until this, the, the, what has become the IRA was dead. And so once Manchin withdrew his support from the earlier version of this, the Senate, with McConnell's approval, uh, passed the CHIP Act, and then uh, Schumer and Manchin reopened this. So I imagine that Joe Manchin is less popular with Mitch McConnell than he used to be. Yes. As a result of all this. So, so we had all this chicanery going on in the background. And as you, you know, you, you use the appropriate expression, you know, we're seeing the, the sausage being made, and that's hardly an edifying uh, process. In this case, however, it seems to have worked. And the results are pretty substantial. I mean, do you think this is a good bill, David? Uh, listeners, I must admit, I have not read all 755 pages of the bill, Frank. I know you're probably better prepared than I am. I read it twice, Dave. Okay, sure. <laughs> in a detailed economic analysis. Um, so there's parts of this bill that I'm very happy about. I'm very happy about the... Uh, Obamacare subsidies continue, and I'm happy about uh, the uh, prescription drugs, that the, there are going to be some limitations on the prices of those using some complicated uh, Medicare negotiations. That's great. They didn't include insulin in that, which is problematic. And crazy, but... Uh, yeah. But, yes, okay, so there's there's some... Again, the sausage is, is, is messy. Uh, the, the efforts to reduce climate change were, are many of them quite good, uh, but they're probably much smaller than what I would like in terms of saving the planet from imminent destruction given floods in Kentucky and fires in, in California and 12 other kinds of natural disasters and a drought. Here. And it is hot here right now. Yes. <laughs> yes. In it, Edinburgh. It is hot in, Ed, it's hot in Edinburgh for Edinburgh, yes. And hot for everybody else in, in large parts of the United States. Um so that, that I'm moderately pleased the bill is passed. It's not the bill I would have wanted, but you know, politics is the art of, of what's possible, not what's ideal. What are your thoughts on the bill? I think it's a great bill. I, I mean, it's I'm not, half full and you're fully it's, full. Yeah, it's not everything you, you would have wanted. I'm three quarters full. I, you know, but it, it's given where we were just three weeks ago when it looked like it was dead. Yes, if those. Yes, a forty percent cut in greenhouse gases by the end of, of the of the decade mm. isn't the United States meeting its target of fifty percent by the end of the decade, but it's four fifths of the way there. Um, it also means it's the biggest in climate bill ever passed by the United States. It allows the United States to take a leading role globally because there have to be a global solution to this problem and there's real money in this for 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 addressing the climate crisis it's not everything of course it's not everything but it's a hell of a lot more than than it we had three weeks ago so i think in that sense it's really good well said some of the details of it are really important you know capping the cost of prescriptions for uh, pensioners at two thousand dollars a year under medicare that's mm. really important yes. i mean there there are real there, there are a lot of elements of this bill that are really going to improve people's lives, both yes. in the short term and and in the longer term. It's not perfect, and you know, cinema got 
you know, basically tax breaks for hedge funders. <laughs> Who's yeah. going to worry about the hedge, hedge fund, fund managers? Exactly. Uh, and 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 Mansion got some, you know, carve outs for the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff you have to put up with when you don't have a, a clear majority. But on balance, I think this is a pretty significant piece of legislation. And I think when you put it together with the other elements of the uh, Biden domestic agenda, mm. given how slim their majority or non-existent their, their majority is in the Senate, it's a pretty substantial, you know, we, we talked and everybody was talking back in, in, in 2020 about, you know, the next FDR, everything else. Well, sorry, we're not getting the next mm. New Deal, but it's a pretty substantial, they've passed pretty substantial legislation in the past two years. Yes, they have. And, they've, and they tend to pass big bills as opposed to, like FDR passed dozens and dozens of he had medium huge majorities. Size. Yes, yes. <laughs> and he had huge majorities, and so it was able. He was able to pass, you know, twenty bills in in hundred days, kinds of things. Uh, here they pass, you know, one big bill a year, but they're really big bills, and I think yeah. there's, uh, given given the very slim, uh, the, the 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 slimmest possible majority they have in the Senate, this it actually is quite impressive. Yeah, I mean, four hundred billions invested in in. Um renewable energy you know over, over the next 10 years um cuts greenhouse gases by 40 percent uh 30 billion for solar panels i mean there, there's a lot in there uh beefing up the irs is good uh 80 billion for the irs mm -hmm. which is you know because the you know the the, the certainly the irs Trump, have been deeply underfunded yeah years. and and so um, you know, and the IRS isn't popular, but but you know, if you're going to get down the deficit and be able to pay for some things, you actually have to yeah. be able to collect taxes. That, that's money well invested. All the money invested in the IRS will pay off in in uh, in spades. That's right. So so I I I think it's good news. I I I, I, I well, I don't want to. So if he's not FDR, where well, how would you compare? What's the what's the right framework for understanding how this. This bill and, and other things that Biden has, has has been able to usher through the Senate and Chuck Schumer. I don't want to give. Yeah, I mean Chuck Schumer, Schumer deserves, laws, deserves right. credit for this. You're right. Um, that's a good question. He's a little bit like his predecessor Obama in the sense that you know he's working with very very tight margins, mm. very little room to to maneuver. Getting a lot of grief from the left wing of his party that doesn't necessarily appreciate the limitations mm. he's under, but managing to pass some pretty significant pieces of legislation. Arguably, Biden's done more on the domestic front than Obama did. Although I think Obama's Obama response, well, Obamacare is huge, yeah. and Obama's response immediately to the 2008 financial crisis. And the intervention as soon as he got into office was really, really important. So, so, but, but I, I, I think they're probably quite similar in the in terms of the environment they were operating mm. in. You have to, yeah, you do understand. Sorry, when I say you have to understand, I mean, they are dealing with an opposition that will not compromise with them on anything. That's right. You know, I mean, there were a handful of, um, you know, they might get a handful of Republican votes occasionally, but they're not. They have to do this. With that, they they can't count on any support from the opposition, and that makes that makes it very difficult to legislate. I, I agree. Um, you know, one thing that I think is we should all prepare ourselves for um, is the likelihood in November that if historical patterns continue, that Republicans either gain control of the House or the Senate or both, given that the opposition party tends to do well in midterms of presidents' first terms. 
uh, which will mean a very different kind of framework for considering things. Oh, which is why I think it was imperative that they get this through this summer. I think they knew. I, I think they're acting on the assumption that this is going to be the last That's piece right. of legislation they pass. Well, the other piece of legislation that got passed uh, this week. Last week, uh, that that that's really important. I think it's historically very significant. Is the PACT Act, which is this uh, piece of legislation, it's two hundred eighty billion dollars. So it's a, a lot of money for health care for veterans. Uh, and the in the fascinating thing about about this about this bill, uh, to me as a Civil War historian, is, is that it changes the framework for understanding veterans' health. Right, so that the background to this is there's been lots of veterans who have been suffering illnesses of a variety of kinds, cancer, um, other kinds of, of illnesses that they are attributing to their uh, military service, oftentimes working around burn pits, uh, but also other chemicals and stuff. And the framework that the government has always had for veterans and veterans' health has been, we will pay for it if we can attribute it to damage done during service time. So in the Civil War, they had a pension, and how much you got in your pension was due, in fact, to your disability. So if you lost a leg, you got so much. If you lost a hand, you got a different amount. If you weren't able to work, and you could attribute it to your military service, then you got a certain amount of money. But the burden was on you to prove that the, the disability was due to military service. And there was a huge fight in the late 19th century, uh, all the way through with Vietnam veterans, um, you know, with Agent Orange and what have you, where veterans were saying, look, this is caused by my military service. And the government's response was essentially, you can't prove that, therefore we're not covering it. And there were lots of bureaucracies that were designed to make it hard for veterans to get health care. And one of the fascinating things I think the PACT Act does is it says, basically, we are going to assume that you have, if you have these particular diseases, and it's a huge number of things, that we are going to assume that you got that as a consequence of your military service and we will cover it, which is a very different framework for how the government is dealing with the veterans' health than it was for the past 150 years. Uh, so I think it's fascinating and, and a really great step forward because there were lots of veterans that were suffering and, and could tell you, look, it's because I handled Agent Orange in Vietnam or it's because I dealt with a burn pit in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and, and now the government's saying, yes, we recognize those are um, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take care of you. Yeah, and it, there was an interesting, uh, the politics of this were interesting because it was a popular bill. This was supported with bipartisan, mm. uh, or it did go ahead with bipartisan support until uh, the Republicans in the Senate threw a little bit of a, uh, of a tantrum as a result of the passage of the IRA mm. um, and, and, and withdrew their support for this act. And so instead of saying, well, you got to support the troops, which is usually both parties' position, yes. um, the Republicans briefly... Uh, withdrew their support for it, but basically got savaged. <laughs> Especially as, by John Stewart, the comedian, yeah. uh, who uh, has been but, a big promoter of this bill. But as a result of that, um, came around again. So this is a you're right, a very significant piece of legislation. And contrary to what I said a moment ago, did pass with bipartisan mm. support, although the, the the road was a little bumpy at the yes. end. Uh, and and this is obviously a very important uh, bill for. Uh, President Biden, because his son Bo, uh, he believes, was uh, died in, in large part of, from cancer that was derived from his 
military service. So, um, right. Okay, that's our, our legislative uh, uh, wrap up. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and our third story on Monday, uh, the FBI, um, some people are calling it a raid. I'm not sure what's the right word for what you would Served call. a warrant. Served a warrant. That's a better... That's, that's neutral. A, that's a neutral phrasing. Uh, at the, I watch Law and Order. You watch... Served, <laughs> <laughs> that's our legal training listeners. We watch, um, anyway, um, they went to uh, President Trump's uh, Winter White House, as he used to call it, at Mar-a-Lago and uh, retrieved... Uh, 15 boxes of, of material uh, pursuant to the Presidential Records Act. Um, this included material that they say is classified. The contents specifically, as we mentioned earlier, may become available to us later today. Um, but uh, this seems to have been a, a fairly um, low-key operation until uh, former President Trump actually announced that it had happened uh, Monday evening. Uh, so Frank, what are your thoughts on the, the uh, Mar-a-Lago incident? Uh, I think it's very interesting. I think it's a very interesting turning point in hmm. the saga, the seeming never-ending saga of former President Trump's legal... <laughs> yeah, just, so, yeah, just for, yeah, just for context, there are also legal stuff going on in New York right now. President, Former President Trump uh, pled the fifth earlier this week. That's about tax fraud. There's stuff going on in Georgia about his uh, efforts to pressure uh, them to, to change the election results. Uh, there's obviously all the stuff going on in the January 6th commission. Uh, but And those are connected in the at least in, in one sense, which is the report suggests that the Department of Justice and the FBI in particular uh, waited until Donald Trump wasn't at Mar-a-Lago to serve this warrant. Mm. So I don't know whether that was in order to kind of preserve his dignity. So he was in New York to testify in this other matter mm. uh, when he pled the fifth. Uh, but but he so he was not in Mar-a-Lago when the, when the um, warrant was served. Uh, we'll call it a raid, but because. Uh, Raid seems to make sense, but uh, I'm not. I, I'm not making a political statement in saying that. Yes. Okay. So when the raid was carried out, uh, as far as what I think about it, it seems to me that um, there must be some pretty serious material they're worried about, and and it's quite clear. I mean, it, going back to the accounts of Mar-a-Lago, uh, of what life has been like at Mar-a-Lago, both during Trump's presidency and afterwards, that security is pretty lax. Uh, we know that. Foreign agents have gained access to Mar-a-Lago and gained access to the president and and his, the former president and his 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 uh, family and his uh, his both his real actual family and his official family, mm. such as it is, uh, and and so there are security issues surrounding Mar-a-Lago, and the handling of classified material is a serious matter, as President Trump reminded us many many times while running for president in two thousand sixteen. That was basically. The, his entire platform when it came to Hillary Clinton, lock her up because mm. she was using, she was allegedly mishandling classified material. Um, so it seems to be a pretty serious matter. We'll have a much clearer sense of what they were looking for, I think, assuming the, the warrant is unsealed this afternoon. And yes. I think it, it probably will be. And the Attorney General Merrick Garland will speak to that. 
they don't take this step like they wouldn't take a step like this lightly. So I, I know a lot of uh, Trump supporters have been trying claiming this is persecution and or it's the equivalent of somebody being um, having their house searched for overdue library books because he didn't return things that yeah. he should. Have. I, I don't think it's so. He took souvenirs from the White House and they're upset about that. It seems to me that they would not have taken this step if they weren't concerned that there was there were very, very sensitive documents in Trump's possession that were not being adequately uh, I, safeguarded. Yeah, so the, this was done in pursuant to the Presidential Records Act, which is a 1978 law passed in the aftermath of Watergate that is designed precisely to make sure that all the documents produced by the White House um, are preserved. And there does seem to be a record in the Trump administration of not preserving all of their records, including... Uh, flushing some of them down the toilet or supposedly eating some. There are accounts of that. Um, but the idea behind the Records Act is that basically anything that's produced in the White House that is pursuant to uh, anything related to Article 2 uh, needs to be preserved. So if President Trump writes a, a, a love note to Melania, then they can you can keep that. But if it's a love note to Melania that also mentions going on a classified trip that no that needs to go in a, an official record what's interesting about this and 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 trump supporters have made much of this in the past four to four or five days is the fact that trump is a possible and indeed likely candidate for president in 2024 mm. and so they are saying that is trump supporters this is the government persecuting a political opponent now i think the Justice Department, which doesn't seem to have consulted the Biden administration mm. on this, which is appropriate, mm. frankly, uh, would be sensitive to that accusation, which makes me think, given those stakes, that they're looking for something pretty important. That This is yes. not a trivial matter because, it, because of the consequences, the political consequences of it. I agree with you on that. However, just looking back at you know, the, the, obviously this is a very unusual circumstance when it comes to a president. This does, stuff does, tends not to happen to, to presidents, but we haven't had that many of those. If you look at American politicians, though, more broadly, this idea of using law enforcement to either uh, disqualify uh, political opponents from serving or, or discredit them just prior to an election... There are actually a decent number of cases of that, right? Um, That's why Trump was impeached the first time. time yeah. <laughs> well, it, yes. Um, I mean, th we, we, we can, there's some examples from the early Republic. Um, Matthew Lyon, uh, you probably know the story better than I do. Um, he was jailed in, he was a, a congressman, uh, he was a Democratic Republican. Uh, and he was jailed in 1798 for violating the Alien and Sedition Act. He published a newspaper that the Adams administration didn't like, sent, spends four months in jail as a consequence. Gets reelected from jail, though, by the way. So you can get reelected from jail, uh, the question. You know, but uh, there are lots of cases during Reconstruction of um, Democrats, that is to say the party of white supremacy during Reconstruction, accusing Republicans of, of corruption and arresting them and therefore getting them off the ballot. Uh, so there are 
you know, there, there are some cases in American history uh, of people using law enforcement as a tool to um, punish political enemies. Well, arguably, that's why that, that charge resonates. Yeah. I mean, the, the, if I were minded to defend former President Trump, this would be the argument mm, I would make. Yeah. That, you know, this is, you know, would they be serving him? Would this warrant have been served? This is the case I would yeah, make. I'm not sure. making it. Would they have served this if he wasn't a prospective candidate in 2024? Now, parenthetically, I would say, yes, yes I suspect it, they, they would, would have. But that's a plausible, if you're seeking to defend President Trump, and particularly if you're speaking to President Trump's base, mm. former President Trump, that's the argument I would make. That's a better argument than, no, he took classified material. You know, the, 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 the purloining of classified material is against the law, and it's just... It, it's not good practice, I think we would do. <laughs> not <good> <laughs> it's not good archival practice, yes, Frank. Yeah, I'm sure these were not you know, stored in archival boxes, boxes. at appropriate no, yes. temperatures. Um, it's not acid-free boxes. Yeah, right. Now, it's things. also been reported as of this morning, that, uh, and one of the reasons that President Trump might be particularly agitated mm. is that uh, uh, they were able to find these documents in part because somebody told them where they were. They were locked in a basement and, mm. and, uh, or in the basement. And, and they broke open his safe. He was very upset about that. He was very worried about his safe. But uh, um, What else is in the safe? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, so, so there's, a, there's a concern, I think, on behalf uh, on, on former President Trump's part that somebody's talking to law enforcement. Mm. Given how many investigations are underway and how many people are being investigated for so many different things, if, you know, whether it's January 6th, I mean, you went through the list yeah. a few minutes ago. Oh, That's one a partial list. One thing I missed with the House Ways and Means Committee got access to his tax returns this week as well. Yes, that's right. So, so, so all hold. this together suggests a lot of people are talking to, to a lot of people are speaking under oath hmm. or maybe speaking under oath and... I think President Trump, former President Trump, is very nervous about that. So I think this has yet to play out because it has implications for 2024. It has legal implications for President Trump. Mm. Um, there are legal, you know, there, there there can be consequences to some of these things. His invocation of the Fifth Amendment this week was interesting because it was in a civil case. Mm -hmm. And when you invoke the Fifth Amendment in a civil case, and I want to make clear, we are not lawyers. If that's not apparent to everybody, yes. do not take legal counsel or advice <laughs> but, but from us. Yes. The jury is allowed to infer when somebody invokes the fifth in a in a they they can infer guilt in, in a civil case. You're mm -hmm. not allowed to do so in a, in a, in a in a criminal case. Mm -hmm. So his invocation of the Fifth Amendment might come back to bite him uh, in the, in that civil case in New York, which concerns whether he um, uh, exaggerated the value of his properties for. Tax, tax purposes uh, or and or, or undervalued or undervalued yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right um, um, so so Trump's legal problems seem to be mounting I think that's the <laughs> now obviously this this could be work a couple different ways though in terms of for Trump supporters I think it does feed into this narrative that people are out to get him and that, that he's being unjustly persecuted by the deep state exactly right so it actually sort of feeds into that. Uh, whether it actually has any legal consequence for the election uh, in 2024, I mean, there's nothing in the Constitution in terms of the requirements for being president that says you cannot be a convicted felon and be president. Um, you know, it says you got to be 35, you got to be born in the United States, you got to live there for a certain number of years, 
and that's about it. Um, people have run for president before from jail. Okay, one person has, um, and he didn't win. Um, that was Eugene Debs in, in 1912, where he was in, actually 1920, I'm sorry, uh, when he was in jail for uh, saying people shouldn't respect the draft, and he still got hundreds of thousands of votes, but uh, didn't win. I don't think that this would keep Trump off the ballot. Uh, I mean, if he's convicted of a felony in the next two years, mm. yes. But I think the, the the wheels of justice grind particularly mm. slowly. Uh, but I think he he will be, if he wants to be, he will be on the ballot. Uh, and I don't think this will keep him off. What it does to his support mm. remains to be seen. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't think... I don't think that will happen. Yeah. I mean, the time... To, the, one reason to have convicted him at one of the impeachment trials mm. would have been to do this, particularly sure. in the January 6th impeachment, but the Senate was unwilling to do so. Yeah. Um, how do you think this plays out? Because I, I, so, so back to my... I, I'm building up to my grand theory He's to tie it. all these things together. Before we get to that, I want to... These things taken together, uh, what do you think the implications are for both 2022 and 2024? I would have thought that the Kansas vote and the re reaction against Dobbs mm. combined with the IRA would have had the Democrats feeling better than they had earlier. Because there's been a lot of pessimism in the Democratic Party basically since 2020 that... The, uh, for the reasons you alluded to mm. earlier, you know, the party in power never does well in the midterms and Biden's old gas is six dollars a gallon, mm. all, all the things, you know, we, we know the litany and that it was going to be a particularly bad, that November would be particularly bad for the Democrats. There's been a slight uptick. I think there was a slight change in, in view in, in the past couple of weeks and things. And I think a lot of people on the Democratic side were feeling pretty good. I do wonder about the raid on Mar-a-Lago, Trump's mm. legal problems. I think those could cut two ways. It's a bit like the abortion mm. uh, case where uh, on one hand, I think Trump's opponents will be saying, yeah, about time, this is good. But this might be the thing to energize his base, which is, so, so I wonder if this provides a kind of countervailing jolt to the successes the Democrats have had. Yes. Um, and and it's, therefore we're back where we were. Um, what do you uh, well, so I think one of the things that I'm, I'm worried about, lots of things, but the, the bases on both sides are very energized right now. Sure. And um, the question is, where does that leave the middle? In as much as there is a middle left anymore in the United States, and it seems like a very hollowed out middle. You know, what does that mean uh, for, for both what the elections look like, but also in terms of... of um, you know, political violence in the United States, which is something I've been very concerned about. And there was uh, an episode uh, with the FBI yesterday where, where some we don't know the details of it yet, but somebody tried to to uh, attack the FBI offices, which, you know, given the timing, seems like it uh, may be connected to, to the uh, events in Mar-a-Lago and the arguments by some Republicans that the FBI is illegitimate and should be defunded and, and what have you. Um, yeah, so the back the blue crowd wants to defund the FBI. That's well, so, well, no, no, it, it, it makes sense in as much as the back the blue crowd supports local law enforcement. Federal law enforcement has always been suspect on the right. You know, going all the way back to to 
you know, events in the, the Clinton administration where, where the, the FBI and the, you know, ATF and the various other federal law enforcement agencies were suspect and, and, and illegitimate. They like Customs and Border Patrol, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a very mixed bag of which, back the, which so, blue you care about. Right, right, right. So do these events, and maybe, I mean, we've proved ourselves mm. many times to be horrible prognosticators. Mm. Uh, do these events, who do they help going into November, this coming November? I'm not talking about 24 yet. Yeah, oh, geez. I think we're going to see a very, you know, I think as the Kansas and Indiana situation revealed, I think we're going to have a very mixed bag in in November. I think we're going to end up with some very extreme candidates on both sides um, prevailing, and and I think that's going to be a make a challenge for governing going going forward. Um, you know, we've had a number of um, election deniers win in primaries in the past couple of weeks. People who 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 think that. The election was stolen, and some of these people are elected are, are been uh, nominated for for positions as secretary of states and the kinds of boards of electors and people who actually run the election. So, the election could be very messy in twenty twenty two. It could be even messier in twenty twenty four. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I share that concern. One th- one thing I. I think there are some echoes of two thousand and ten and two thousand and twelve, particularly in the aftermath of the. Tea Party movement, which in many respects anticipated mm. a lot of this, when the Republicans really did have the upper hand because of the opposition to uh, or the dissatisfaction mm. of elements of, of President Obama's um, administration, nominated some crazy, literally, mm. <laughs> really eccentric people, the witch in Delaware yeah. and the legitimate rape guy in Missouri and... and and, and the same in '94 when you right. had the contract with America, right. and and those. So in other words, to to use a British football expression, you know, the, the Republicans are facing an open goal here, but they, some of these candidates are going to have trouble kicking the ball in, um, mm. and and so so I think that that's an interesting. But they may claim it went in the goal even if it doesn't. Well, that's right? true. Yes, you can move the, the goal. goal. <laughs> yeah, let's stop torturing this metaphor. Uh, so, so I, you know, so you you think about the some of the Senate candidates they've nominated um, are going to have a tougher time than they might have if they if they had nominated somebody else. So I think that is going to be something interesting to watch. I think it's too soon to tell who's going to do well. I, I suspect the enthusiasm on the right and the left. You're right. Both bases are pretty motivated. Will probably cancel each other out, and I then therefore the kind of historic trend of the party in power losing power, a bit of power, mm. is likely to happen. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, one of the things that that people used to teach in, in political science classes is that you, you get sort of extremist views in primaries, and then between the primary and the general election, candidates tend to moderate their views on the supposition that they're trying to persuade the the people in the middle. And one of the things I think we're seeing in the past elect couple of election cycles, and I think we're going to see more of in the future, is that not happening anymore, right? That the the effort to 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 sort of moderate your views to become appealing to the the undecided middle that that's over. And one of the sort of manifestations I've seen of that is the number of so this seems to be more true of Republicans of Republicans who are unwilling to speak to. Uh, mainstream or legacy or whatever you want to call them media outlets on the supposition that they, they they have no interest in speaking to 
NBC or CBS or NPR or whatever, or the Washington Post, they're only going to speak to their media folks um, and only try to speak to their established audience. Which I think is a, you know, says something about, about the way politics has been fundamentally changed over our lifetimes. Also the way in which the media landscape has changed. And one thing we haven't talked about this week and we won't have time mm. is Alex Jones. I mean, that was, oh, you know, that's a whole other... Uh, I'm not sure I want to spend too much time but, thinking but about But the this. Alex Jones <laughs> case yes. reveals, the which, the degree, it reveals the degree to which the media landscape has changed and you can reach your voters mm. without recourse to NPR or NBC or you know, pick, pick whatever mainstream or, or legacy outlet you want. Okay, Frank, you've been teasing this grand okay, theory. Okay, right, so, so, so I, I have a grand theory. Yeah, this is, I'm going to be optimistic here, David. You are usually the optimistic one. Yeah, but I, I actually think there are grounds for optimism. Okay. And, and I, so first I want Give to talk about the, the politics of what we've seen, uh, if we look at this from 30,000 feet, and then the kind of, and then uh, the constitutional um, aspect of it. So maybe the system is working. And let me illustrate this. So the Supreme Court handed on the Dobbs decision and said, "Okay, states decide this." I think the six people on the Supreme Court who voted in favor of Dobbs have a decided view on abortion and wanted a particular outcome and expected the states to provide that outcome. But Kansas, a very red state, basically agreed with the rest of America. Remember that Pew poll I cited? Almost 60% of Kansas voted to keep uh, abortion rights. The view across the United States is 60. That's in uh, agreement with 62% of, of the population of the United States. Some Republicans, and this hasn't played out yet, and so we'll have to see this, but we are seeing some evidence that the opponents of abortion are changing their views and uh, moderating their position in response to this. So you may not agree with the outcome, Mm. I, I don't agree, but the system is working. The IRA... And I'm talking about the bill, not the terrorist organization. Or, <laughs> um, is a pretty major piece of legislation. It's not everything anybody would have wanted, but in a divided country, and a country is pretty evenly divided politically, and the Senate reflects that. Now, the Senate's incredibly undemocratic. I'm not here to speak up for the Senate as the world's greatest deliberative body, as they would claim. Uh, but the IRA was a product of a compromise and produced huge investment in key areas, health, the environment, and the economy, that's a good result. The Regardless of how one feels about former President Trump and his legal travails, the justice system is working. Now, I had a debate with a graduate student a couple weeks ago who sort of sneered, he's not American, uh, sneered about uh, America's in crisis and the, the government's afraid to hold Trump to task. Well, the justice system moves slowly, but it's moving. Mm. So you look at all of these things together and you take a step back and you get off Twitter and you say, actually, the system is working. It's ugly. Mm. Seeing the sausage get made is ugly. So that's the political act. I'm going to allow you to respond. Okay. And then the constitutional one is as follows. Now, I don't, I'm not necessarily as in favor of this, but in the United States from 1789 until 1929, maybe 1900, it doesn't matter. What we saw was 
actually, we'll go back earlier. From 1789 to 1860, we'll go to your period. Okay. It's a federal system uh, where the states, the preponderance of power, if not the preponderance of power, the states had more power down to 1860 than they did after 1860. From 1860, with the Civil War, from the Civil War onwards, Certainly after the Second World War, after the New Deal in the Second World War, mm. when we get a really powerful federal government, down to, let's say, the election of Reagan in 1980, mm. we get the expansion of the, of the authority of the federal government at the expense of the states. Since 1980, certainly that's been the, the ideolog one of the ideological drivers of, of the conservative movement has been to take that power away and to erode the power of the federal government. So we've seen a steady erosion of that power. And so we've entered a phase of a kind of, it's like the antebellum period, but with nuclear weapons, in the sense that basically things are reverting to the states again. Now, I don't necessarily favor this, mm. but it's not constitutional craziness to say that's exactly what's happening with abortion, and you don't know what the results will be. We don't know what the results of these, these ballot initiatives will be in Kentucky, California, Vermont, and Michigan, but there's a, there is a basis in the constitutional history of the country for such activity mm. and therefore the system is evolving and this is the culmination of an anti-federal position that's really been been energized in the past 40 years and so we're in a, we're in a moment of constitutional change so uh, that's my theory things aren't as bad as they seem all right okay you go ahead okay <laughs> <laughs> with the caveats of these are not the same kinds of issues exactly, but I think that since you mentioned going up to 1860 and letting states decide things, you know, there was a, a, a previous episode in the in the 1850s in which Congress said, well, let's let the states or the territories decide things about, I don't know, slavery and whatnot, including places like Kansas, on the supposition that local control would be a better solution than federal decisions about slavery in the territories. And what happened in Kansas, um, and it's intriguing that, that it's in Kansas in both these cases, that's purely a coincidence, but it's a it's fascinating coincidence. coincidence. Um, you ended up with a, you know, a precursor to the Civil War breaking out in 1856 you know, and 57, that, that in which you know, lots of people died. There was government illegitimacy, because there were two rival governments, you know, and a tremendous amount of, of violence. Um, and that leaving things to the states often has, especially with critical and divisive questions, um, can have very serious consequences and, and very rarely turns out well. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I want very much to think that, that the system is, is both healthy and can recover from the particular challenges it faces right now. Um, I think you share President Biden's belief that, that the overall system works, and it may be slow and messy, but it's a, um, but it, you know, the, if you have faith in the system, it will continue to be operational. I think Merrick Garland is, is likewise uh, in that tradition of Believing even under the worst of circumstances, the American system is, can be a product for, for you know, tremendous good and what have you. Um, 
I'm not entirely sure, though, that uh, Biden and, and Garland's, uh, you know, the flip side of them on the Republican Party, believe those same things. Um, and how, how do you govern with, you know, uh, an opposition party that is um, behaving much in the way the Republicans have been for the past definitely six years, but uh, probably a bit longer? Um, I'm hoping you're right. I'm very much hoping you're right about the health of the system. Um, but it is a very uh, old system and one that, that is maybe not all that well Oh, it needs reform. Don't get me... I, yeah. mean, I don't want to... <laughs> I'm aware of that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, and I'd start with the Senate. But um, I just... See, if, you, if you take a step back, maybe things aren't as bad as they seem. I, I'm hoping you're right. I'm taking a step back and it looks pretty bad. I mean, you know, Kentucky's underwater and California's on fire and that's just, uh, yeah. We've, David, we face massive global problems and uh, the United States faces massive problems internally. But sometimes things aren't as bad as they seem. Listeners, Check in again in five years if you are able to, and we're not all underwater, and we're, and, and hopefully Frank is right. All right, on that note, <laughs> hopefully Frank is right. We should change the name of the podcast. <laughs> I very much, no, I, I very much hope you're right, because I, I think, yes, I very much want a future where, where, where things, things are better than they are. Yeah, and I want to make clear I'm not advocating a constitu- this, this kind of constitutional system where the states are deciding everything, yes. but I think that's where we're at. Mm. And there is a kind of strand of constitutional thought that does says this is more democratic, uh, you know, and, and allowing local people mm. to make local decisions, you, you know, that's very Jeffersonian. Um, and, uh, but I think that's what we've got. And I think trying to understand the constitutional moment we're in mm. rather than screaming about it or, or raging against it. I, I think we've, we've seen... I, I, I do think... I was thinking a lot about this this morning. I, I think there is a crucial difference or a crucial aspect to this that has to be taken account of, which is the rise of the national security state since 1940 is really uh, significant and and that is a break with the past i don't want to talk about the deep state but i'm talking about the organs of you know national Mm. defense and security are so powerful Mm. and they do reside with the federal government and the federal government can't and won't be giving those up and so i don't think we i joked about us being in the antebellum period we're not going back to the antebellum period in that sense but, but the other thing that's really different now is that since the 1960s, you know, I think there's a profound belief by many Americans that they have rights that are protected by the Constitution and the federal government, and those are in jeopardy right now, whether that's rights to abortion, rights to marriage, rights to, to equality based on, on, on gender, race, and, and sexuality. That has been you know, one of the major changes in, in American society in the past 60 years uh, and stepping you know where, where it looks like we're stepping away from that uh, and that's going to have profound effects except the Kansas vote suggests that the American Maybe. people aren't going to accept that unless you move to Indiana 
In which case, yeah. Well, yeah, but it remains to be seen whether the voters of Indiana mm-hmm. will agree with what their legislature did. Yeah. So, to, you know, David, we're in the... You, you, you got to take a step back. We don't know how this plays out. I, okay. I agree with you. Those rights are under threat. But Americans value those rights. And, and the Kansas vote would suggest they're not going to give them up. All right. Well, we will see, we will see again... I hope Frank's right. Um, time for last drops, Frank. Yep. Give us to give us something to to think about. Yeah, war is really bloody. That's what I'm going to say. So, so there was an article. News slash war. <laughs> not good for your health. Right. Go. Yeah. So there was an article in the New York Times on August eighth, which I want to commend. It was a story written by a man named Zach Zorich, and it concerned discoveries in New Jersey. Um, by uh, archaeologists and historians who were... With their body? Wait. Okay, sorry, well, they, yeah. they, they, that that uh, discovered the remains of 14 Hessian soldiers. And Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, no. <laughs> who were killed at the Battle of Red Bank. The Battle of Red Bank was held uh, on the Delaware River on October... Tw- or, or occurred, I should say. It wasn't held. Uh, on October 22nd, 1777. And researchers there, the, the team was led by an archaeologist named Wade Katz and a historian named Jennifer Janofsky. And... Uh, Professor Janofsky is the director of the Red Bank Battlefield Park and teaches at Rowan University in New Jersey. Uh, the, the, their team discovered the remains of 14 Hessian soldiers who were killed in this battle. And what the article in the Times said and, and what the, their findings suggest is that the, um, you know, it was a very bloody yet relatively small encounter. Uh, with the, it was a battle that took place on the Delaware River in defense of, of Philadelphia. Uh, in 1777, and it's a reminder of a kind of, or it's more evidence, I should say, for for an ongoing histor- historiographical trend around the American Revolution. There's been an argument that a number of historians have made in recent years that the War of Independence, the American War of Independence, was much bloodier than previously thought, and this is kind of further evidence for that. And there's a lot of there's a growing historiography on the nature of that conflict and showing, uh, in many respects, an anticipated your war, yeah. the Civil War, that it's a there's quite a Bloody conflict. And when you say, I mean, beyond being dead, like, like what, what, what? What's the nature of the wounds, wounds and, okay. the, and, and where they were located and, and so on? So they're recreating because it, it's very close to the the defenses on the Delaware River. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So it's, anyway, I commend that to you and and uh, and commend the good work of uh, uh, Katz and Janowski. So yeah. Excellent. What about you, David? Uh, I want to recommend a new podcast. Uh, once you're done listening to ours. Uh, and that's a podcast called Tilling the Soil, which is put out by Whitney Plantation. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Whitney Plantation, this is a, a former sugar plantation in Louisiana. But one of the things that makes Whitney different uh, than most uh, former sites of enslavement in the United States is it really does center the lives of the enslaved uh, as being their, their primary mission. You know, So as we've talked about in the past, there's tons and tons of these plantation house museums and some of them are doing better jobs than others in terms of of how they talk about uh, the enslaved experience but Whitney is, is is really at the forefront of saying what this is a plantation is what this site is about as a museum is for centering the lives of the enslaved not talking about the people who lived in the house and their fancy furniture and silverware uh, and so this new podcast is another way of of spreading spreading their message and talking about about how to commemorate uh, enslavement uh, on, the, on the historical landscape. And unfortunately, the Whitney Plantation got hit by a hurricane last year, so they, they, they've had some damage and are in need of money. So if you have spare money, people, um, 
I don't. But if you do, uh, give some to Whitney Plantation because they, they definitely are doing some, some really good and important work. Excellent. Right. Cheers, Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.